This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So this talk will be moving from things that are fairly close to what I would call scientific truths. That, was, that, was, that is, scientific theories or explanations that seem fairly stable, and they're probably not going to change uh, too much. Uh, into scientific speculation, so this is where we come sort of approach extraterrestrials a bit more closely, and then furthermore into more of theological uh, speculation. So we are in a, a very good place, is that we will have some theological truths that we can anchor these speculations in, but then also uh, our faith allows, uh, gives our permission uh, to speculate about the existence of extraterrestrial life, and I will take full advantage for that, and I'm happy to also take questions afterwards that pushes me even further uh, if that is your desire. But we will start uh, with the science. So the, the, one of the great discoveries, one of the great astronomical discoveries in the past few decades uh, is that planets are very common. So we used to only know the planets in our own solar system, uh, which used to be nine, and then we Pluto, Pluto is another eight. Uh, but around the same time as Pluto was demoted, we also started to discover planets from other stars. And today we know that basically all stars have planetary systems around them. They're just incredibly common. So in our galaxy, the Milky Way, uh, there are around 300 billion stars. Uh, that means that we have hundreds and hundreds of billions of planets as well within our galaxy uh, alone. So these, uh, these planets come in many different flavors, just as we have many different kinds of planets in our own uh, solar system. But if we're thinking about the likelihood of having life outside of the solar system, we're mostly going to be interested in planets of a very particular kind. Planets are not too different from the Earth, uh, in fact. So these are planets that are not too far and not too close to their sun or to their stars, uh, and therefore are temperate. Uh, temperate enough to sustain liquid water. I'll come back to why we think liquid water is so important, but if you talk to an astronomer, what, what is a habitable planet? So a planet that could possibly sustain life. It would be one of these sort of rocky planets sitting at the right distance from their star. We have some idea of how many of these we have uh, through the same methods that allowed us to discover uh, exoplanets in the first place, which is what's uh, illustrated here. Uh, so there are two main techniques that astronomers use uh, to detect planets around other stars. Uh, these planets are too faint, so we can't just point our telescope at them and see them directly. So instead, we have to look at the impact of the planet on their star, and that's how we find out that there's a planet there. And there are two ways that a planet can impact the observation of a star. Uh, one is that the, the planet gravitationally tugs on the star, which makes it wobble, so we can sort of see the star wobbling around as the planet goes around it. The other way that we detect the planet is that if the star is here and the planet passes in front, you'll see a slight reduction in the light from the star. Both of these methods depend on the size of the planet as well as how close the planet is to the star, and therefore we can find out how many of these so-called habitable planets there are. We don't have a super precise number for it yet, but it's somewhere between a few percent to maybe 10% of stars in our galaxy have one of these habitable planets. So that means there's a lot of them. I mean, I think that's it. Whether it's 1% uh, or 300 billion or 10% or 300 billion, there's still a lot of how potentially habitable planets uh, out there. So I want to come back now to the definition of habitable planet and why we focus on having it be the right temperature to sustain the water. So, on one hand, you might think that this is just us looking sort of inward and saying Earth-centric. Here on Earth, all life is water-based, so maybe astronomers are just not being very creative and we're just looking for water-based life elsewhere. 
that might be the case, at least that might be how it started, but I think we have a pretty good reason to think why uh, most life in the universe, if life exists outside of Earth, will be water-based. And that's because water is a really good solvent to have chemical reactions in it. And we think that life originated out of chemistry, and if you're going to have really complex chemistry, you're going to need it somewhere where the chemicals get together and build up complexity. And water just has several unique properties that make it a very good place for this chemistry to take place. But it's, of course, not very useful to have the right temperature planet uh, if you don't have any water there. The city at the right temperature doesn't guarantee that you have a wet planet. So the next question we want to ask is, how often do these habitable planets end up with water on them? And then I said the reason that we want water is to have these chemicals react with one another to build up chemical complexity. So then the second question is, how often do these planets end up with the kind of molecules that we think are important for organs planets? So those are the next two questions. Uh, that I want to talk to you about. And to answer those questions, we are going to answer step back in time in the life of a planet and a star and look at what the environment is like where stars and planets form. So this is a recent image that some of you might have seen because it was one of the images that was released when the James Webb Space Telescope uh, well, started uh, producing science uh, about two months uh, ago now. Uh, so this image, this very beautiful image, uh, shows a so-called interstellar cloud. Uh, this is somewhat analogous to the clouds we have here in our atmosphere. It's an over-density of particles. And this is where stars and planets form. So one might think if we have a lot of water and organics in these kind of environments, you're going to be sort of going in the right direction of forming planets with this water and this organics on them. We can look a bit more detail, though, on how stars and planets actually form. And this is now your one-minute course in star and planet formation. <laughs> so these clouds, they're very big, and they therefore have a lot of mass, and they just start to implode under their own gravity. Uh, as the mass goes towards the center, it heats up and you form the star. So that's what's happening sort of in the first uh, track in this, in this figure. Uh, these clouds always have a little bit of spin. It's very difficult for something in space to sit precisely still. If you've seen any space movies, you'll see that things are always sort of moving around a little bit. That's because if you give it one little push off center, it will start spinning. This spin has to be preserved. And if you shrink something that's going to spin up to preserve the what's called total angular momentum, same effect as when an ice skater you know, pulls her legs uh, together to spin up. Uh, it's going to spin up so much that the star would be just pulled apart if you let all that spin be preserved in the star. So instead, what nature does is it puts almost all the mass at the center forming the star. And then a little bit of a mass in the disk around the star, maybe 1% or so of the mass. And that's, this, this disk is where planets form, and that's why the solar system really looks like a disk if you look at the orbits uh, of the planets. So in, uh, in this disk, uh, a planet, and I come to one minute lecture on planet formation with a star formation. Uh, in this disk, a planet like the Earth forms in sort of three or four steps. The first step is that dust particles come together to form the bulk of the Earth. So most of our Earth is metal and rock, and that's what forms first. And then you can deliver things like water and organics in three different ways if they exist in the environment where the planet is forming. One is you can trap a little bit of water and organics in this rock, things are steep up. You can accrete a little bit of gas, and that can, that can establish water and organics. Or you can have impact from comets and asteroids, and that will deliver water and organics as well. But this all presupposes that you, in this disk, you have water and organics, uh, organic molecules to start with. Now, 
I said that 20 years ago, roughly, we discovered that there were planets from other stars. Around five years ago, we got the capability to actually observe these planets as they are forming. So this is a pretty recent sort of astronomical technical uh, achievement. And the technical achievement is this telescope, ALMA, which is a large telescope consisting of many telescopes that are working together in the desert uh, in Chile up at 5,000 meters, which somehow will have to translate to American. Uh, but it's high up enough that you need oxygen to be up there. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. And this telescope, when you point this telescope towards these disks, these planet-forming disks, uh, what we see are these incredibly complex and beautiful structures. Uh, in this uh, case, a brighter color indicates more material. So you see, what you see is that there's a carved out lanes that look darker. And this is where planets are currently forming. And they're sort of sweeping up material uh, as they're forming in these disks. So we can actually sort of see planets as they're being made. And that means that in theory, we could also see what else is there in these disks and do we have the right conditions to form habitable planets. In the case of water, though, the question, we don't even have to look at it in the disk because we already know that it's there based on solar system and this data as well as observations of interstellar clouds. If we turn our telescopes towards these beautiful interstellar clouds, uh, one of the most common things that we see is water. Water is just an incredibly common molecule uh, in our galaxy. This is something that maybe shouldn't be too surprising because water is also very common in our solar system. But what it allows us to really connect the water in the solar system to the water that we see in stellar clouds <coughs> is the amount of heavy water that there is in the solar system. So when you are drinking a glass of water, something like one, like 10 parts in a million of that water is heavy water. Um, and that is more than it should be. And that extra heavy water, the only way we can explain it is that we inherited it from these interstellar uh, clouds. And if we form with all this interstellar water, we think that other, um, other disks and planets, exoplanets, should as well. And we actually do have evidence, also when we turn our telescopes towards this disk, that it's true, we do see water. All that this is showing is a spectral signature of water in one of these uh, disks. But this is pretty much always what we see. In fact, we see so much water in these disks that one of the worries we're having is that uh, many of these planets can actually form with too much water. If we're thinking what's an ideal planet for this life, it's probably one that is mostly rocky and then has some madness and some water, some lakes. We can sort of concentrate any chemistry that, you, that's, uh, that you're having where you can form different habitats. Having a complete ocean is not obvious at all, but that's going to be good. And that might be the most common uh, planet that we form. Not an Earth-like planet, but something that looks more like a little Neptune one. So water is not going to be a problem. So how about organic? How often do we expect to have form planets that also have all these organic molecules on them? And here we are back at the same telescope that I showed you before, uh, which it turns out also has the capability to identify specific molecules uh, in these disks. And one of the things that we have been doing is using this telescope to basically take pictures of different planet forming disks but isolating the light that's coming from specific molecules. The main thing that, and these are all pictures showing that, but I want to zoom in on five just to make two points. One is that a lot of these pictures I just showed you are small organic molecules uh, that turn out to be incredibly common in these cysts. These particular uh, observations are of hydrogen cyanide, uh, which might not sound like the best molecule uh, to, have, to have around, but it turns out it's a really good one if you want to kickstart an interesting organic chemistry. Uh, so we have a lot of these molecules 
Uh, but you don't necessarily always see it in the same place in the disk. You see these structures that vary from source to source. So it might be that you will be forming planets with quite different, with quite different environments around different stars, but overall you would expect them to be quite organic rich. In addition to these observations, we have other ways to infer that we're also inheriting organics together with the water from the earlier interstellar clouds. When we put all this together, what we can say is that on average, we expect planets to form in disks that are rich both in water and in organic molecules. So if we now take, take this together with what I said in the beginning, which is that these um, temperate planets, Earth-like planets, are probably pretty common, where we're ending up is that habitable planets are probably quite common in our galaxy. So that is, planets are the right temperature, that have water on them, and that have sort of the building blocks that you might expect to need if you're going to have an organs of life chemistry that eventually produce uh, organs of life. But having the right conditions, or we think about sort of the basic conditions for habitability, does not mean that you can assume that you get extraterrestrials. Uh, we don't know exactly how life came into existence here on Earth. That makes it quite difficult to predict how often it should come into existence at other places if we have these sort of basic conditions uh, set. So it might be that these habitable planets are common, but inhabited planets are rare. That is still very much sort of scientific uh, possibility. So here is where sort of the scientific astronomical truths facts sort of end, and we're going to enter into the more speculative part of our evening together and talk about this likelihood of that they are actually inhabited with some kind of life. In doing that, I think it is important to make a distinction on um, what kind of life we're talking about. Uh, these are two out of three of these are earthly creatures, but they came in a nice color scheme that made them look somewhat alien. So they get to represent my extraterrestrial bacteria, animals, and then of course our rational animals. And the reason it's useful to separate them in these three categories is that um, in popular media, even from some scientists, you tend to hear that if you get any kind of life, you can jump all the way to sort of intelligent extraterrestrials, which is what we typically think about when we talk about extraterrestrial lives. And I want to make a point that we really cannot. We really need to treat these three different categories uh, separately. And I'm going to start with the simplest one, that is the bacteria, or maybe something even simpler. Bacteria are actually extremely complex creatures, and if you need to uh, I don't know, take time away from other things for a while. Go and look on YouTube for videos about the inner workings of a cell or looking at bacteria, you'll see like the wonderful machinery that goes on in these. But still, it's something that uh, is relatively simple compared to the other two categories. And one way to try to estimate how often you get these kind of creatures on other planets is to look back at our own history and think about how they might have come into existence here on Earth. So the Earth um, is about four and a half billion years old. Uh, we know that the first few hundred billion years of the Earth's life were not very hospitable to life because we had a giant impact that ended up forming the moon, so Mars-sized objects hit the Earth and basically heated the entire surface into lava, and that took some time to cool down. But probably around 4.2 billion years ago, the Earth was back being temperate and potentially habitable. We don't know um, how quickly the next few steps happen. We, we know what should happen is you start out with some of these small organic molecules, Things like hydrogen and cyanide that I showed you before, that builds up to more complex molecules, that builds up to macromolecules, 
that starts forming something that is like a lifeline. I said we don't know how quickly that happened. What we do know is that around 3.6 billion years ago, life was present on the Earth, and it was very abundant, and you had already an extremely complex. And that suggests that it had been around for quite some time, and it might have taken just tens or hundreds of millions of years for life to originate uh, here on Earth. Exactly where did ha this happened, or the precise process through, the, uh, through which this happened is something that there is uh, not consensus about in the scientific community. Uh, the three main uh, places that people have proposed uh, are these are atmospheric chemistry, so lightning strikes, takes a lot of energy into the system, you can produce a lot of interesting molecules, vents uh, that are underwater, and then lakes that are exposed to sunlight. Uh, I favor the last one, but at this point, we're really talking sort of more about personal scientific preference rather than any conclusive evidence for, for why one should be favored instead of others. That doesn't mean there are any reasons, though. And the reason that I think the last one is the most likely is that we do have uh, pretty good experiments that show that if you have one of these lakes, you have some hydrogen cyanide, you have UV from, from the sun, you very readily form exactly the building blocks you would expect to need to form the kind of life that we see in our last common ancestor 3.6 billion years ago. So we have some, I would say, we don't have a complete scientific theory, but we have some sort of cartoonish idea of how life could have originated here on Earth, and we see that it went pretty, uh, pretty fast. This um, might suggest that we should expect it to happen often on other planets, and I think that is the intuition that most scientists have. Um, happens pretty quickly here on Earth. We think that we have some understanding of the chemistry that could have pushed us from through basic building blocks up towards life, even though there are a lot of big gaps to still fill in. So we should expect to find this pretty often on other planets. However, expecting something is very different from knowing it. And we are not going to be able to say whether this as an outline of a theory is correct until we actually do find life on other planets. The way that astronomers uh, will try to do that is by looking at the atmospheres of some of these uh, habitable planets and look for gas signatures that would be telltale signs that there is life going on on the surface of those planets. So the Earth's atmosphere, for example, oxygen and methane are gases that come basically exclusively from living, uh, living things. And if you leave them be together, they will basically consume one another. So you need a sort of continuous source of them into the atmosphere. Uh, so that would be one kind of sign of a living planet is to have oxygen and methane uh, there. So those will be things we'll be looking for. Uh, it's not going to be as easy, though, as just finding those molecules and then saying that you have for sure found life on the planet. Because there are other potential sources. And one of the things that we're currently sorting through is trying to come up with other scenarios that could also produce these kind of molecules that we would typically associate with life. So that when we start having access to the telescopes that are powerful enough to detect these molecules on other planets, we can have some sort of probability scheme of which combination of gases would be the most unlikely to have if there was not uh, life there. But I am, as you might have noticed, talking about the future, and that is because none of our current telescopes are powerful enough to do this. Uh, if James, the James Webb Telescope, if we are lucky, we will be able to detect some molecules in some chemical planets, but it will not be conclusive to, to say that there's, there's life there. So we're talking about missions that are 10, 20, 30 years into the future to be able to start doing this, uh, this work for real. However, there are uh, places closer at hand where we could 
but we could uh, find life also again if we are lucky. Uh, planets in our solar system that are potentially habitable are Mars, so you can see Mars in the distant past. There might be relics of life on Mars, and that's what the current NASA mission there uh, is, is for, is to dig up some Mars soil, eventually have it shipped back to Earth, and then look for sort of relics of past life. There are also several moons in the outer solar system that have water oceans. These oceans um, are not at the surface, it's too cold, but they are deep inside. And there's especially one of them, which is not shown to scale, it's actually a tiny moon that's called Enceladus around Saturn, uh, that is very nicely releasing some of its ocean, it's a giant geyser out into space, that if uh, we wanted to fund a mission to go and look at it, uh, we could potentially uh, find that. Uh, if all that life needs is uh, water as a right molecules around, which of course we don't know if that's the case. So bacterial life. How, how shall we think about that? Uh, so from a, from a Christian perspective. There is, um, if it turns out that life is abundant in the universe. Uh, that suggests a couple of things that I think are worthy of contemplation. One is that there is some law of chemistry, some law of nature that we have not yet discovered, that pushes chemistry towards biology if you have pretty basic sort of preconditions that are, that are, there, that are met. Uh, this is not obvious why this should be the case. Uh, and it would be very interesting. Oh, can we stabilize it towards there, maybe? No, you made it worse. Oh, no. Just as I was showing some humanities related <laughs> things <laughs> to give some relief. Um, okay, I'll try to keep an eye on it. Uh, is that it would suggest that there is something in how chemistry functions that naturally takes it towards biology. Now, on the one hand, that might seem a bit threatening because it seems to superficially take God out of the process of creating life. And it would fit into a story that's often told of a Christian God as sort of retreating that used to be sort of needed for everything, to explain many things, and now science has taken over and explains more and more, and therefore God is needed to explain uh, less and less. But I was never, I will posit that that was never a very good way to view how God creates uh, in the world. Uh, if we look how God typically interacts with the world, it is through natural causes. Uh, it is by endowing his creation with the dignity to be real causes of things. To be able um, not to be capital C way to create, but to be there to transform, I guess is a better word, to change matter from one into another. This is certainly true for us in a very special way to have uh, an intellect and, and a will to do this consciously, but it's also true for the universe as a whole. And if you think about what is more impressive, let's say if you have any smaller siblings or nieces or nephews, so keep them in mind, and think about which one is the hardest. Is it to read a story to them, or is it to teach them how to read for themselves? And I would say that's not a terrible analogy between how much more impressive it is to create a universe that has a causality built into it compared to creating a universe where sort of God has to step in and do uh, all the things without the universe itself taking part. I think, uh, on the, and if we, if we think about what it would mean if the, if the so laws of chemistry sort of naturally points towards biology. 
That would really suggest that we live in a universe that was created in its very sort of foundation to bring forth life. And that is a rather powerful thing, and it sort of brings uh, us as living beings back to the center of the universe in a strange way. Not uh, that in some way if we are the cause of the universe, not, of course, the material cause or uh, the efficient cause, but the final cause. We are, we are what the universe is sort of aiming towards. And I think that is a powerful thing uh, to contemplate if that turns out to be the universe that we live, we live in. But we don't know yet if that's the universe that we live in. We have not detected life uh, outside of the Earth. And it might be that we are it, uh, that we are the ark carrying with it all the life of the universe. Uh, this is not the universe I'm hoping that you live in, uh, but it does have a, a beauty to it as well. It's a lot more severe uh, beauty. Uh, but the beauty nonetheless, I think what beauty brings to the forefront, how contingent uh, we are, and how precious this gift of the earth is that we have been given. Um, we'll see if in either of our lifetimes we'll get to to pick which kind of universe, or like, it will be revealed to us which kind of universe uh, we live in. But in the meantime, I will happily assume that we have extraterrestrial bacteria and move on to the next stage, which is that of extraterrestrial atoms. On the one hand, the bacteria and the animals are not so different um, in that they are both uh, creatures that are natural. We are not talking about, we are talking about irrational uh, creatures. Yet, I think it is useful to divide them up because it is not obvious to me that you will always get animals if you have an origins of life. I think often we think about the origins of life as a really big divider, the big step that we have to get over. And once you have life, Darwinian evolution will take over and you will rapidly move on to more complex uh, animals. But if we look at Earth, this is not exactly what happened. Uh, we had an origins of life maybe 4 billion years ago, but not until 3.5 billion years later do we start getting multicellular creatures. So with 3.5 billion years with just bacteria. This suggests that it's not that easy to evolve from these single-cell creatures into the more, bigger, more complex ones. And we might very well end up having planets that have only sort of bacterial or analogous to bacterial life on them. That might be the typical way that life uh, exists outside of Earth. Now, which one is it and why does it matter? Well, again, I think it's useful to go back to Earth where we can First, we'll start to ask ourselves, why does it matter here? Uh, why does it matter here whether we have only like a small number of animals or even just bacteria and then rational creatures versus having, having many? This is something that people have been thinking about for a long time within the Christian uh, tradition. Obviously, I will go to Thomas, and not only because this is the TI, but because um, I think that, that is, he's a source of wisdom for basically everything, as we'll see, even including whether there could be extraterrestrial uh, rational animals, which I did not know when I started giving these talks that he had sort of laid the ground for, but he did, you'll see. Uh, but the way that Thomas thinks about this um, is that um, all the creatures here on Earth all the living creatures, but all creatures in general, they show something of God's goodness and glory that could not be shown without them. And one of the ways to think about this is that God is infinite, which means that no finite creature could reveal him or point to him uh, fully. And the more sort of instances of different kinds of creatures we have, the more aspects of his goodness uh, are revealed. 
Uh, that gives me hope that he has created a universe that has also, let's say, more interesting life forms on other planets uh, beyond, uh, beyond bacteria. But I do realize that the main kind of extraterrestrial that not just you, but also most astronomers are most interested in is the last one, is the one of the rational animal. So these would be um, sometimes also just referred to as intelligent, extraterrestrial intelligent beings. Uh, I'm used to using sort of traditional Catholic nomenclature and calling them rational, but for our purposes, they would mean the same thing. Um, but it will be important uh, why, like, so it's not unimportant to make, make that distinction since you can think about very intelligent animals, such as some of the large monkeys and chimps, or chimps for example. And that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, here we're talking about uh, something that we could recognize as being created, as having rapid, sort of rational faculty, having therefore also a willing intellect similar to our own. Should we expect, if we have animals, to always get also these kind of rational animals? It seems like here on Earth, this step from having animals to having intelligent animals was not too big. They're happening again on a fairly short time scale, especially compared to this sort of bacterial time scale of 3.5 billion years that we talked about before. So this shows somewhat of a family, some of our family tree, our you know, biological bodily uh, family tree, which shows that starting around five, six million years ago, so very short time scale, uh, we started seeing creatures that started to resemble us physically in different ways. So these were sort of ape-like creatures that were first walking on two legs, uh, that were then starting to use some simple tools and so on. It lives or family groups that we can recognize, sort of reminiscent of the early humans. And at the top of the tree, and I think this is correct, but you'll definitely have some scientists that would object to even like putting something on the top versus all sort of equal. But at the, then at the top of one of these trees is where our ancestors are. So this sort of biological evolution towards intelligent animals, I think, seems to happen pretty quickly. And it also, one can sort of understand from a Darwinian point of view why this might, might happen. But is this um, enough? A confident theology moment that even if we just stay with sort of the science uninformed by theology, what we can say is that no, it does not seem to be enough to just be an intelligent animal, to be recognizably human. I think many things that we associate with uh, being human are things like being able to produce art, to reason, language, and so on. That did not happen for all of these different kind of intelligent animals. It happened for one. And even for, uh, for one, that's Homo sapiens, it didn't happen immediately, it seems like. It seemed like it took some time that so we had hazarded biological Homo sapiens around for some time before they started to behave like we would recognize in a human way to develop culture. So while, so we're now talking about hundreds of thousands of years ago, and especially around 50,000 years ago, where people talk about the cultural revolution within the species of Homo sapiens. This is where you start getting things like this. This beautiful cave painting, as we can see, not just, so this is someone that's trying to picture what they saw, but you can sort of see the creativity and also the joy in the painting here, these interesting sort of shapes and colorings. And I think this is someone, whoever made this, I think if we met him or her, we could have a conversation with them. This is someone who's clearly, uh, clearly human. Now, from a Christian point of view, we have an explanation for this, uh, and I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but first, I just want to take, I guess, a couple of minutes and talk about how could we find this kind of extraterrestrial from other planets. And this is where you get into the kind of 
uh, things you maybe read about in the newspapers and in them, things like SETI, so such a search for extraterrestrial intelligence, um, where we're, at, we're looking for basically alien civilizations. We're looking for, for an extraterrestrial that has developed technology that would be detectable by us. The classical way is to turn radio telescopes uh, towards stars and to look for radio signals that are purposefully or accidentally emitted by some alien civilization. Uh, this is uh, ongoing. There is a NASA Institute that does exactly this. Other more fanciful ways that people have thought of that we could detect this is by looking, again, in the atmospheres of planets, maybe looking for gases that are not just could be from life, that could only be from industry. Uh, even more fanciful uh, are so-called Dyson spheres. Uh, so this takes the assumption that the civilization will grow and grow uh, as long as it has energy. And the way you uh, get the most energy is basically by building a big structure around your star, around your sun, and just get all the energy from the star. And people actually look for this, like in a sort of legit uh, way. They have not found them. So. <laughs> um, so we don't know yet if they exist. Uh, though there might be some more questions about that. But back to the theology. But as I said, we have this sort of archaeological um, evidence that suggests that there was a transition within our biological species from what we may call an intelligent animal to someone who was recognized as a human, I would say theologically uh, human. And within the Christian tradition, we have an answer to what happened, which is that we do have a supernatural soul uh, that was not evolved naturally, but given to us in a very particular way. And this is not something that even could have, it's, it's not even given us in a particular way, in the way that most things are given to us particularly, that is through natural causes, but that each soul is, is specifically created by God, and now I'm using created with a big, with a capital C, so created out of nothing like the universe itself was created. And this, not all, this means a couple of things. It means that you're not going to be getting rational aliens sort of accidentally, or nothing of course is really accidental, we're all under God's providence, but it would not happen naturally, is a better word. This, if there are rational aliens, they exist in a very direct and specific way because God wanted them to exist. And I think that should be actually kind of comforting. Uh, we're not, as I said, accidentally going to run into an alien uh, civilization. But it also means that we cannot in any way presume that because we might often get uh, alien animals that we will often get uh, alien rational animals. Uh, that is, again, not something you can get just through uh, evolution. But let's say that these extraterrestrial rational animals exist. Uh, how should we think about that? So up until now, I think, I mean, what I've tried to convey is that there are interesting sort of theological contemplations that we should have uh, on the existence of alien life, but there hasn't really been anything controver too controversial yet, I think. The controversy would start, uh, would start here uh, with these potentially existing extraterrestrial rational uh, beings. Uh, one, I think, concern that sometimes gets brought up is that, again, it seems to follow a different story than the one I said before, but to be told by people of a similar mind, which is that over history, we have gone from being at the center of the universe to being more and more at the periphery and less and less important. So it used to be that we were at the very center of the universe, the universe was created specifically for humans to live in it, and then you know, Earth moved away from the center to orbiting the sun, and then we all orbited the center of the galaxy, and then we're just one of many galaxies, and now we know we're one of many planetary systems, and maybe we're not even the only living planet, and maybe there are even other rational animals, and why then 
would God care? Like, what makes us so special? Uh, now, in one way, I think that question should not be a surprising thing, even if the earth was all that there is. I think it's, it still should be so daunting and surprising to us how special we seem to be to God. I, I don't think that is a question that depends, or like, say, the, so the, the scandal of incarnation does not depend on whether there are other rational creatures out there uh, in addition to ourselves. And I think that is really where the, where the answer is. If we end up having uh, sort of alien siblings uh, out there, that, of course, should not in any way make us think that God cares or loves us any, any less. Um, here, Earth, we have billions of siblings, and we do not think that we're in competition with them for God's love. So I don't think there's any reason to think of us that we should be in competition with our very potentially existing uh, alien sisters and brothers. Uh, if we want to, if we still feel a little bit unsure about it, uh, I think it's good to, to keep in mind that we actually already know that we're not the only intelligent beings out there. And the one intelligent being that exists um, has often interacted with humankind in different ways, and it has been for benefit. Uh, talking about angels, of course. Uh, and they have been a conduit to knowing God better, not in any way taking away uh, from the very special relationship uh, that we have from them. Where I think the real potential controversy and issues come in uh, have, really have to do with incarnation. Uh, and I mean, we believe that we are saved through the incarnation uh, of the second person of the Trinity as Jesus Christ. And if we are saved that way, uh, how are our hypothetical aliens saved? How shall we think about the incarnation with respect to this, uh, to this alien uh, race? One thing that we could ask, uh, could there be a second incarnation? Uh, this is um, where Thomas comes back in. Uh, perhaps surprisingly, he says absolutely there could be a second incarnation. Now, Thomas Aquinas did not believe that there had been or would be, uh, but he also was certain that God did not lose his power to become incarnate when he became incarnate uh, as Jesus Christ. But just because it's a possibility doesn't mean, of course, that it happens or it would be even fitting. But it's a good thing to have in the back of our mind as we consider sort of the logical possibilities for how, uh, how could this hypothetically existing alien race uh, be rescued? Uh, how could they be saved? Uh, one possibility, and this is something that C.S. Lewis considered, is that they don't need it. Uh, I think we think about the fall as something very natural because we are all children of the fall. But if you think about it logically, uh, falling, away from God was the most irrational thing one could possibly do. Uh, you have the whole universe, except the one, one fruit, and two minutes later, it seems like that's what you're going for. Uh, it might be that we have a universe of extraterrestrials who are looking at us sort of in disbelief, as well as in wonder for them how God came to the rescue. I think the only thing that uh, speaks against that is that we know also that one other sort of rational being or intelligence, the, a the a angels, and it seemed like a good portion of them fell too. Or we know that a good portion of them fell too. Um, so that then amongst sort of the rational animals, if we would be the only ones, is maybe not the most likely. Uh, option two is that they exist they fell, and they have not been saved. Uh, I think it's a logical possibility, but it does not seem to be very consistent with um, how far God went to rescue us. So I'm going to take that one out of the equation. 
so they might exist, they might, they have fallen, and they're saved um, in some way through the, through the same incarnation that saved us. Uh, if we read the, the Bible including Paul's letters, it seems like the incarnation sort of put the whole universe back sort of in order and, and gave it back some of the directionality towards God and removed sort of fundamental barriers. I think, there's a, there's, I think it's the most natural uh, reading of the New Testament. Uh, but it's also difficult to see how, how this could be both how it would be fitting that we get this awesome friendship with God by him becoming one of us, and how other races do not. Also how this is transmitted. But of course, neither is, is impossible, so I think this is one of the possibilities to, to consider. For if they exist, they are fallen, and they were saved through some other means, including potentially their own incarnation. And I think that's Having multiple incarnations, I think, is something that makes many people uneasy, including myself. When we're thinking about sort of the magnitude of God stepping into creation and becoming one of us, somehow it doesn't seem like a thing that should happen over and over again, but it's more just sort of like you create the universe and you redeem it. So there's like these are the two things that everything else are circles around. But it's a logical possibility, it's certainly something that's permissible to contemplate. Uh, but because none of these four seems um, as likely as one would, would like, there's certainly uh, Catholic thinkers who have come to the conclusion that most likely they do not exist. That there might be many kinds of life in the universe except us, but that rational animals outside of Earth is not one. Um, I sort of oscillate uh, back and forth between which one of one, three, four, and five that I think is the most likely. And I think tonight, uh, <laughs> tonight I'm kind of enjoying one because I think that brings back into focus just how um, how something as unnatural our fall was, even though I think we are right to call it our happy fall for the incarnation that then they came and came to our rescue.